Deliverables from the EU ASEAN Summit, Indonesia's new penal code, and Thai Prime Minister Prayut's plans for re-election. All this and more on today's episode of Southeast Asia Radio. I'm Karen Lee, and today is December 21st, 2022. On today's show... I expect for Indonesia actually to continue some of the G20 agenda items um, into its ASEAN year, namely the digital economy and food security. But also, I think the rest of ASEAN is very intently looking at how to revive you know, each individual country's economy through the digital platform. So those are my expectations. That was Alina Noor on Indonesia's priorities during its ASEAN chairmanship next year. I know our team had a lot of fun grilling Greg and Alina for this special holiday episode, so stay tuned for more. First, though, the headlines. Today, to help me read the headlines, we have a very special guest from the building, Harrison Pretile. Harrison is the Associate Director and Associate Fellow with CSIS's Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative. Hi, Harrison. Hi, Karen. Happy to be here. So, Harrison, I know that for our team's White Elephant gift exchange last week, you contributed a gingerbread kit of the Millennium Falcon from Star Wars. So, since you spend most of your days staring at boats, if you had to build a U.S. naval vessel out of gingerbread, which one would you choose? Well, if I'm completely honest, I wouldn't choose a U.S. naval vessel at all. I would probably choose the USS Enterprise from Star Trek. Now, readers can go ahead and email us explaining that the USS Enterprise doesn't stand for United States ship, but stands for United Spaceship. But I'm not going to read those emails, and I'll just build my USS Enterprise anyway. I like that answer. Um, We definitely expect you to send us pictures when you're done. Moving on to our headlines, I thought Southeast Asia was done with summits after November, but I was wrong. On December 14th, leaders from the European Union and ASEAN met in Brussels for the first ever special summit between the two blocs to commemorate 45 years of diplomatic relations. Topics of discussion included green energy, the digital economy, and sustainable development. Harrison, what were some of the major deals announced at the summit? I'm glad you asked, Karen. Following Indonesia's big announcement of a just energy transition partnership on the sidelines of the G20 summit last month, Vietnam and G7 countries unveiled their own JetP deal worth $15.5 billion. Similar to the deals signed with Indonesia and South Africa, the effort will mobilize both public and private finance over the next three to five years to help Vietnam limit its peak coal capacity and source 47% of its power from renewable energy by 2030. The EU also announced an infrastructure package of grants and loans for ASEAN countries worth 10 billion euros, or $10.7 billion. These fall under its new global gateway strategy for investing in sustainable and transparent infrastructure projects worldwide, which is widely seen as the bloc's alternative to China's Belt and Road Initiative. The EU and ASEAN are each other's third largest trading partners after China and the US, and Southeast Asian nations no doubt see strengthening relations with Europe as a way of diversifying their partnerships outside of current Sino-US tensions. Maybe for the next iteration of the summit, ASEAN can be the host. I know I'd much prefer spending winter in Bangkok over Brussels. I absolutely agree. For our next story, Harrison, I feel like we need to take advantage of your expertise. Could you cover recent developments in the South China Sea? Happy to. The South China Sea made headlines again this week when the Philippines Department of National Defense expressed concern over dozens of Chinese vessels at Iroquois Reef and Sabina Shoal. Defense Secretary Jose Faustino called it unacceptable and a violation of Philippine sovereignty. I should add that this is a trend, not an overnight development. Over the last four months, the average number of vessels in both features has ranged from 20 to 25, according to a senior Philippine military officer. There were only between zero and seven vessels at Iroquois Reef during the same period last year. 
Typically, most militia vessels go home for the holidays. So why not this year? Well, they still could disperse before the Lunar New Year in January. And you also have to remember that the majority of militia vessels hang out at other reefs in the Spratly Islands. The Philippine authorities aren't reporting on those in this instance. But the buildup at Savina and Iroquois does come during a period of significant momentum in the U.S.-Philippine alliance, as demonstrated during Vice President Harris's symbolic visit last month to Palawan, an island a little over 120 miles from Iroquois, where she reaffirmed U.S. defense commitments to the Philippines. It's possible that China might have sent vessels as one way of signaling its disapproval. To me, what's notable is the Philippine response. President Marcos Jr. has been trying to strike a delicate balance in rhetoric and posture towards China since his first State of the Nation address in July of this year, when he said that the Philippines will defend its territorial integrity and national sovereignty. Marcos plans to visit Beijing in early January, and he could try to separate any disputes in the South China Sea from broader cooperation to avoid derailing talks in other areas. I guess we'll just have to wait and see. For now, let's shift from foreign policy to domestic developments, starting with Indonesia. The Indonesian parliament's revision of the country's criminal code on December 6th drew widespread criticism from human rights groups to the United Nations as the new laws endanger critical civil liberties. Although most of Western media has focused on the provision that criminalizes sex outside of marriage, which presents a threat to LGBTQ rights since same-sex marriage remains illegal, the code also criminalizes insulting Indonesia's president, flag, ideology, and institutions. Additionally, it has banned abortion for non-rape victims, significantly limiting reproductive rights. Add this to the provision mandating permits for protests, and you can see why there are concerns that the government will use the law to repress dissent. Wow, I know the regulations won't come into effect until 2025, but I can't see this being good for tourism or foreign investment. The laws definitely represent a significant step backwards for freedom of expression, journalistic rights, and human rights in Indonesia. But looking ahead more immediately to 2023, what's going on in Thai politics? A lot. And it seems like all the major parties are gearing up for next year's elections. In early December, Thai Prime Minister Prayut Chan-o-cha signaled that he plans to run for re-election, potentially under the new banner of the United Thai Nation Party. If he were to win, Prayut would only be able to serve until 2025, given the constitutional eight-year term limit, but he's already started courting potential candidates to run as MPs. At the same time, 73% of respondents of a poll from the National Institute of Development Administration said that they expect the leading opposition Thai party to head the new government. There's also been a series of party defections, right? On December 15th, 31 MPs officially resigned from the House of Representatives, with 11 coming from the ruling Palang Pratchett Party, or PPRP. Many are poised to join the second largest party in the coalition government, Pumjaitai, potentially because they see an end to PPRP's political fortune. Clearly, Thai politicians are preparing for a potential snap election before May 7th. I was just starting to miss all the intrigue around Malaysia's election, so I'm glad the action's just getting started in Thailand. We will definitely have an episode to catch up on Thai politics next year, but for now, thanks for joining me, Harrison. Happy to be here, Karen. Up next, Greg and Alina in the hot seat with a recap of Southeast Asia in 2022. Hi, listeners. Welcome back to the final holiday spectacular episode of Southeast Asia Radio. I am Greg Poling, recording from Washington, D.C., and our co-host Alina Noor is recording from Kuala Lumpur. Hi, Alina. Hello from a distance. And we have no official guest today. Instead, we have three official co-hosts who are going to do all the real work. So joining us is the real firepower behind the Southeast Asia team here at CSIS, we have Andre Kanadlagawa, our associate fellow, Danielle Fallon, our research associate and program manager, and Karen Lee, our research associate. 
And guys, with that, uh, I'm done working today. Uh, the show's yours. Go right ahead. Yeah, thanks, Greg and Lilina. You know, I think we just wanted to get everyone together just to talk through, you know, what happened in the region over the year and, and what to look forward to next. Um, so we've all got a number of different questions for you, but I thought I'd start it off with, you know, taking a, a 30,000 foot view uh, to the region, right? As we're heading into 2023, my question is, is Southeast Asia as a region or individually as countries, are they more stable now or uh, less uh, than we started 2022? That's that's a deep question to start off a holiday spectacular. You know, I, I was watching the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday spectacular last night with my daughter, and it was a little more lighthearted than this is, I have to, I have to say. Alina, do you want to weigh in first on, on the relative stability of the region? I mean, don't you think Southeast Asian countries are guardians of the galaxy? Isn't there a parallel to be made between what you watched and what you're watching? Alina, I know that we're a little below Kevin Feige's radar, but I still don't want to get sued by Disney. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll take a stab at it a little more seriously. I think, um, you know, Southeast Asia has always been in this weird dynamic stability equilibrium, if that makes any sense to me. We started off this year um, in kind of a anxious moment, I guess, coming in from last year with uh, the, the coup in Myanmar. Uh, not the coup, but yeah, the coup in Myanmar. And it hasn't gotten any better, but we've also seen some interesting developments politically, um, notably with the elections in Malaysia, but also the return of Juan Marcos. And so I think we've seen some pretty interesting, exciting developments that haven't played out and, and run their course just yet. So more of that to come next year. Sounds like a cop-out, but what do you think, Greg? Yeah, I mean, I guess if we're talking about policy stability, then I, I suppose the region is a little more stable than it was a year ago, partially because things aren't as unsettled by impending political transitions, um, particularly in, in the Philippines. COVID is a little farther behind the region. I think leadership, while of course there's enormous challenges ahead to get back to pre-pandemic growth levels, I think at least people have a better sense of the landscape. Things are a little less uncertain. You know, Malaysia's election throws an interesting spanner into the works. I'm not sure if I think that policy under the new onward-led coalition is going to be more or less stable. I guess we'll have to see. Thailand is an interesting point of potential instability with the upcoming election. Uh, but Thailand's been a potential point of instability for my entire career. So I'm not sure how to, how to rank that. Um, on the political front, I mean, I don't see a lot of obvious instability in in politics in the region outside of maybe Thailand, but especially Myanmar, which would have been my answers a year ago. And Myanmar is, I suppose, in the center more destabilized than it was a year ago. But in, I mean, perversely, in some of the periphery, it's more stable, right? I mean, a lot of ethnic armed organizations have effectively set up proto-states, which didn't exist two years ago, much less one year ago. Another big picture question for y'all, um, Greg, I think it was you who said a couple podcast episodes back towards the end that, you know, this was the week where Southeast Asia was this shining center of geopolitics. And so as a year where you had three uh, ASEAN countries hosting big multilateral fora, it was Southeast Asia's big year to be in the spotlight, the new focus of U.S. strategy. How did they do? Remarkably well, considering that nobody signed up for this, right? The 
the Indonesians did not get excited about a G20 chairmanship thinking they were going to have to deal with uh, Ukrainian, you know, a war in Ukraine, the first major land invasion in Europe in decades. Um, they didn't expect to see Taiwan tensions at, uh, you know, multi-decade high. They thought they were talking about food security and energy prices and post-COVID recovery. And what was shocking was that for the most part, they managed to actually do that. I mean, 11 months of the year was spent with the Indonesians trying to make sure that the actual summit could talk about the things that that they viewed as most important. And it kind of did. The Cambodians, when it comes to ASEAN, I think were so terrified of the, the ghost of ASEAN pasts from 2012 that an enormous amount of energy went into just making sure they didn't screw this one up. And for the most part, they didn't. And then, you know, though, I guess they, APEC went off fine. APEC always goes off fine. It, it always gets the least attention of the three. But so in as much as none of these summits were really capable of fundamentally moving the ball on big geopolitical issues, their job was to make incremental progress and not screw things up. And, and they did that. One step further, I think, you know, a lot of people basically dismiss ASEAN for not doing anything and not acting quickly enough on many things. And for the most part, that criticism is valid. But I think with this year, what the three different four have showed is that actually, well, ASEAN under Cambodia's chairmanship actually worked. You know, there was this massive possibility of it being overshadowed, not only by the things that Greg mentioned, but also by the US-China tensions. And I think that's right, you know, that Cambodia was so worried about 2012 coming to haunt the region and itself back again, that Phnom Penh took extra pains to make sure that didn't happen. So I think as far as ASEAN is concerned, it did what it was supposed to do. It brought all these powers together and managed to not be completely overshadowed by the huge powers and um, managed to get all the declarations out, too many of them for us to recount. And yeah, G20 and APEC proceeded along the same lines as well. Not part of ASEAN, of course, but I think the fact that all three Southeast Asian countries pulled off these huge fora without incident when it all could have gone to hell actually says something about them. Just going to jump in again. You know, I'm curious to hear your take on how Southeast Asia's uh, relationships with the United States and China have, have shifted over this past year. Any, any key developments to point to? Any trends that we should be watching? I don't know if Alina and I are going to agree on this. I'll be curious to hear. I mean, my sense is that China has continued its steady deterioration in terms of influence and popularity across the region, which we saw beginning, you know, pre-COVID with concerns about economic and political coercion paired with bad behavior in the South China Sea and elsewhere, worsened by kind of peak BRI being behind us. So the lending levels, FDI levels have, and, and merchant acquisitions have fallen off pretty severely from peak BRI between 2015 and 2017, depending on that metric. So a lot of the Economic influence is still there, but I think the narrative that China's this kind of economic black hole that's going to suck everything in has has worn off. And then COVID accelerated that. I mean, China had a pretty clear field to run when it comes to influence in, in 2020 because of U.S. bumbling. 
And, and the fact that it managed to screw that up by its heavy handedness, demands for gratitude, tenure diplomacy, continued bad behavior in the South China Sea and elsewhere, and then the economic slowdown caused by zero COVID. I think when you look across the region at both elite surveys from Institute for South Asia Studies and, and the annual surveys that come out from Pew, for instance, in, in Malaysia and Singapore, uh, the Lowy Institute poll last year of Indonesia, all of them show that countries across the region, for the most part, view China as still um, inevitably their most important economic partner. But that is generating more anxiety than hope. And that while there's still lingering disappointment with the US on plenty of fronts and a lot of concern about growing US-China tensions, the US remains the preferred political and security partner. And probably, I mean, frankly, the preferred economic partner of a lot of countries, that's just not uh, really in the cards. I don't know if I agree or disagree with you, Greg. I mean, I think there's a lot of flux in the relationship between ASEAN countries with the US on the one hand and with China on the other hand. I mean, I agree that China certainly hasn't helped itself and its sudden reversal of its zero COVID policy just recently, I think only adds emphasis to how it's handled COVID, even though it did have that lead um, with Southeast Asian countries in the beginning because of its vaccine diplomacy. But by the same token, I think there's still a lot of open-endedness with uh, the relationship with the U.S., given that there have been some efforts, yes, but um, still a lot of open-endedness regarding the economic relationship, despite IPEF, for example. And as we head into 2024, I think that uncertainty is only going to heighten a little more. So I'm not sure where I land with regard to your question, Andreka, but I think... Um, basically, you know, a wait and see kind of answer from me. Real quick, I, this is one of those areas where I think it really has why it's not helpful to aggregate the region when we're talking about these kind of broad policy questions, because there's no such thing as an ASEAN position on the US or China. If I'm in the Biden administration, I feel quite good about where I stand right now, because US popularity and influence is clearly up in the individual bilateral partners that I am prioritizing if I'm the Biden administration. Philippines, Indonesia, um, again, in no small part due to Chinese coercion. Uh, Vietnam still, although I, I know there's a lot of concern about some backsliding on the, on the milk cooperation, but I think some of that has been repaired the last couple of months. Singapore is a little iffy. There's a clear difference between what elite opinion is and what public opinion is. But in general, I feel good about those places, which are the places I've prioritized and the places where most people live uh, in Southeast Asia. But if I were to say, okay, but how am I doing in in Malaysia and Thailand, well, I don't really know. I mean, if, depending on the opinion poll, I'm somewhere around 50-50 with China, which isn't great for uh, my second treaty ally, if there's a treaty in the region and, and a longstanding partner. So we really do have to disaggregate here. Sorry, I think moving ahead, we will also have to include East Timor and the, the ASEAN family and how it, it figures into its relationship with the ASEAN countries, but also with the US and China. Okay, I'm going to throw out two challenging questions. One, what is your favorite holiday tradition? And two, if you had to eat one traditional holiday food for the rest of your life, what would it be? This is uh, the hardest question you've asked. So um, my favorite holiday tradition is probably... Uh, decorating the tree. I'm a big fan of, of real Christmas trees, and um, my wife is not, which is a constant fight, but I still 
kind of the last two years have gotten my way. So we've got a big dead tree carcass and in the house, which my daughter likes to decorate. My least favorite tradition by far is Elf on the Shelf, which I resisted for like the first three or four years of my daughter's life. I don't think it's a tradition if somebody started making money off it in the mid-2000s and we all just bought into it. If I had to eat one holiday food for the rest of my life, I mean, obviously it would kill me, but it would be cookies. I'd have to go with Christmas cookies. I, I assume that you meant actual food, but no, the best part of Christmas cuisine are the cookies. So as a Southeast Asian, I think my favorite holiday tradition, regardless of whatever holiday it is, is to eat. Andrek is already laughing on the Zoom screen because I think he knew it was coming. So eating would be my favorite holiday tradition, regardless of the holiday. And my least favorite holiday tradition is actually also eating because, you know, after I've stuffed myself, I just feel terrible about myself. And then I regret my poor choices in life. And if I had to choose one thing to eat, this is a, an extremely difficult question for a Southeast Asian to answer. And so I'm just going to say I don't have one, but maybe on a whisper, I'll say fried rice. And don't ask me what kind of fried rice because we'll get into a food war in Southeast Asia. I will jump in about Elf on a Shelf. I think my favorite thing about that is all the memes that come with it. So my favorite one that I saw on Twitter yesterday Someone put a Bruce Lee action figure on their tree and they called it, they're like, you can call it Lee on a tree or Bruce on a spruce. It makes it, you know, much more fun. There's endless possibilities. So I don't think you have to be constrained by the limitations of, you know, necessarily an elf on a shelf. I I am conflicted enough about maintaining the the Santa Claus mythology. All right, here's the part where everybody should get their kids off the podcast if they're listening. Much less having to convince my daughter there's some little narc living in the house who runs off to the North Pole to tattle on her every night, which is the exact opposite of how I teach her to be when she sees other kids doing something bad. Don't be a narc. Karen, since you mentioned Lee on a tree, I mean, your last name is Lee. If you get a little decoration of yourself, you could be Lee on a tree. That is a good point. I, I never thought about that. So looking forward a little bit, Greg and Alina, do you have any forecasts for what to expect for Indonesia's chairmanship of ASEAN next year? I see Alina waiting for me to unmute my Zoom to start. Uh so there's two main issues I'm going to be watching. Of course, there'll be a myriad. There'll be 100,000 meetings. Um, but the two big ones that, that I'm going to be watching, at least early on, are going to be how Indonesia deals with the Myanmar question. Um, and then whether or not there's there's a concerted effort uh, by Retno Marsudi, the foreign minister in particular, to try to revamp or modify the ASEAN outlook on the Indo-Pacific, which was kind of her, her brainchild in the first place. On Myanmar, I think we'll see some incremental progress disinviting junta leaders from individual ASEAN meetings. But uh, to be honest, I, I think people who think that, that Indonesia is going to be particularly ambitious on this are probably fooling themselves. There might be individual members of the government in Indonesia who would like that, but th this is Jokowi is not the geopolitical you know maverick. He's not going to go out there and try to break consensus, and neither is Retno. The Malaysians were the ones who were most forward-leaning on Myanmar, not Indonesia, and now we've lost Foreign Minister Saifuddin. So I don't expect a lot. I think ASEAN's role on Myanmar will continue to diminish, and that Myanmar will continue to thereby undermine ASEAN's narrative of centrality. On the ASEAN outlook in the Indo-Pacific, there will be some efforts, I have no doubt, to add some, some color, some substance to it. It wouldn't be hard. The AOIP right now is so vague um, that it really means nothing. But it is one of these interesting places in which concerns about the 
diminishment of Asian centrality, particularly the spread of this Indo-Pacific concept in first Japan, then the U.S., and then other partners led ASEAN to do something it wouldn't have otherwise done, which was come up with its own version of the Indo-Pacific. And so there's there could be some creative tension here, right, where threats to ASEAN centrality actually force ASEAN to make some of the, the decisions that it should have been making all along. I wasn't going to start with the Indo-Pacific, but I think I'll pick up on where you left off, Greg, because given South Korea's Indo-Pacific, upcoming Indo-Pacific strategy that's coming out and Canada's recently released strategy, I think you might be right that there might be some pressure for ASEAN to rethink how it views the Indo-Pacific beyond what's already in the outlook. You know, I think Indonesia has had a tough year as it is being G20 chairmanship, uh, being G20 chairman. And I almost want to go a little easy on Indonesia, but I think given its G20 chairmanship, it should be a relatively easy slide into the ASEAN chairmanship, given that it's already been in that high intense fast pace gear. And so ASEAN will just be a kind of a different set of challenges for it to continue along the pace that it has been going at. I expect for Indonesia actually to continue some of the G20 agenda items um, into its ASEAN year, namely the digital economy and food security. So I expect some continuity um, given Indonesia's own priority in those areas, but also I think the rest of ASEAN is very intently looking at how to revive you know, each individual country's economy through the digital platform. So those are my expectations. I'd also flag two other things. One that Alina brought up earlier, we'll have progress on Timor succession. And there is a significant, um, I think, longstanding desire in, in Indonesian political circles to kind of be the ones that bring Timor into the tent. They tried uh, last time around, it wasn't ready. So there I, there will be some efforts, although I'm skeptical that Timor can actually meet the bureaucratic, administrative, and financial burden that is ASEAN membership in, in the next year. But it's possible. That could be the, the surprise announcement maybe at the end of the year. And then the other thing is there will be some kind of dark horse things that come up, right? Nobody thought that Cambodia was going to deal with a Russian invasion of Ukraine or, or Taiwan. I don't know what it'll be this year. If it's North Korea, more Taiwan, more Russia, Ukraine, maybe a new, you know, violent harassment of Indonesian drilling in the South China Sea that causes Indonesia to put this higher on the agenda. But there will be something that we're talking about by the time of the ARF in the summer that we had no idea was coming at this time. So bringing the U.S. back into the picture, I'm curious where you think the U.S. has failed to engage Southeast Asia in 2022 and where you think it needs to step up next year, or perhaps where you think it realistically can step up since economic engagement and rejoining CPTPP is not going to be one of those areas. Should we do one, two, three, and then we both yell trade? I'm going to say you can't, you can't say trade. It, or if you say trade, you have to say something else as well. Alina, you want to start? What is that? <laughs> I know. I was going to say trade, so um, I've just said it. <laughs> All right, let's start with trade, and I will say more. They are having the first actual round of negotiations on the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework this week. That's six and a half months after the announcement. You cannot, in every single statement, brush off the trade criticism, whether it's from, you know, Blinken or Raimondo or Ty. Everybody says, yeah, 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 we get the trade 
criticism, but wait and see. We've got this great thing in the works. It's the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. It's like trade, but better. It's it's the new thing. You know, trade doesn't matter anymore. And then spend six and a half months getting to the first round of negotiations. This lack of urgency in what is supposed to be the the central economic pillar of their engagement, like the big answer to all the criticism confounds me. And so given that it took six and a half months to get to the first round of negotiations, um, I would be extremely skeptical that we're going to get to any actual conclusion to IPEF in a time frame that is relevant uh, to the current concerns of ASEAN, much less the Biden administration's time in office. Although maybe there will be some early harvests on particularly the decarbonization pillar. I mean, I think if there's going to be economic benefits that come out of U.S. engagement, it's it's clearly going to be entirely on climate change, right? We're going to see more big announcements of money like we saw at the G20 because they don't have anything else to offer. And money's great, but it's not a trade policy. So your answer was trade. Just to- My answer was trade, but you said I had to give more color if I was going to. You want a second one? The second one is I'm tired of us hiding behind ASEAN's skirt on Myanmar. I know we don't have any good answers, and neither does ASEAN, but talking about the ASEAN five-point consensus is is a punt. I mean, everybody knows the five-point consensus is dead, and so we're basically just passing the buck to Indonesia saying, I don't know, you figure it out. Okay, that one's, that one's valid. Alina? I'm curious as to what prescription Greg would suggest with Myanmar. You are avoiding answering the question. I already said trade. Fine. That was my only gripe. Actually, I will give the Biden administration some credit on um, how far it's come with the ASEAN relationship. And so really, the only thing that's missing for me is in concrete deliverables on trade. Look, I, I know that I come off sounding like a you know grumpy old man yelling at the sky when you ask that question. I, I'm actually pretty happy with most of what the Biden administration has done in Southeast Asia. I think I'm generally on the record saying that I think they've got the right approach, this two-track approach of doing with ASEAN what ASEAN is willing to do, but not being shackled to ASEAN's inefficiencies is right. And so we've had enormous progress in the Philippine alliance. I think we're going to get a lot of big announcements between now and the spring, we'll probably get a two plus two meeting. We'll get more EDCA sites, et cetera. Indonesia is going pretty well. Vietnam is getting back on track. So I, I don't have huge complaints. So my big complaints are trade in Myanmar. And on Myanmar, I don't have great answers either. But I do think that we need to be exploring other things, including more explicit engagement with non-NUG members of the opposition. Top of that list for me would be the Arakan Army. If we want to keep talking about repatriation of the Rohingya, we should stop engaging on this issue only with the junta and the NUG, neither of which are ever going to control the villages that we think the Rohingya are going to return to. The only actor that matters is the Arakan army. We don't have any formal engagement with them. I'm not going to make this a Myanmar podcast, though. I've suggested all of those, not specifically, but engagement of parties beyond the NUG through the five-point consensus, actually, because the consensus, I think, actually allows for that. I'm curious to hear, you know, after talking about the United States and, and China, right? Your assessment of how other regional partners have done in Southeast Asia, so countries like Australia, countries like Japan, could you give us a, a scorecard of their engagement in Southeast Asia this year? I am actually not going to give them a scorecard. It's just, you know, be highly inappropriate. But I will say that I think Australia is back in the region and under Prime Minister Ahmadizi's foreign policy 
we've seen more welcome approach to the region that's been appreciated by countries in Southeast Asia. And I think there'll be bigger and better things to come in the coming year. Japan, likewise, I mean, Japan has been a steady partner for Southeast Asia and continues to be that for many countries in the region. But also, I think we should include Korea in the mix. And uh, a lot of upbeat trends, I think, with regard to Korea. Korea has kind of been a little distracted for valid reasons with its own domestic politics. But Korea, again, has been kind of that quiet, solid partner in Southeast Asia that has a lot of potential to to be more than what it has already been. And so I think with all these partners, I think India has been a little, has not been performing as well as it could in Southeast Asia. And unfortunately, that's going to be a running trend. I'm not sure we're going to see any change on that front, but I think with all the other partners that I mentioned, certainly a lot to look forward to in the new year. Great. So I'll give them all scores. I don't mind. Um, so let's start with the U.S. Let's see. Based on everything I said, I'm going to say the U.S. gets a B minus. It's not a bad grade, but you don't get better than a B minus with no trade policy. Oh, B minus is very bad for Asians, Greg. Well, sure, but you know, uh, most of the U.S. administration didn't have Asian moms, so a B minus is fine. The Aussies, I agree with Alina. I'll give the Aussies a B minus or a B. Some of our same failings, but the Labor government's got a much better diplomatic game for the region, and they continue to deepen the mill alliance with the Philippines, networking with the Japanese, etc. Japan gets, I don't know, an A minus. I can't give Japan an A because I think its Myanmar policy is quite unhelpful, particularly letting. Private citizens run parallel diplomatic initiatives in Arakan State that aren't necessarily helpful. But otherwise, Japan continues to carry a lot of the water for all of us like-minded across the region. Korea, it's so early to tell how much this new engagement is actually going to matter. But at least on the commercial front, everything's fine. It's a major security partner for the region now, although only really in commercial sales. So let's go with B- minus as well. India, C. I mean, India continuously overpromises and underperforms, which means at the bottom of the rankings, I have to put China at a C minus because it's doing worse in India diplomatically and militarily, and it continues to rely almost wholly on its economic uh, hammers, and, you know, economic sticks and no carrots. Wow, a C minus is like disownment level. Oh, I guess I'm not going to get my next visa to China. I'm not sure I was anyway. Completely unbiased view, I'm sure, Greg. Entirely unbiased view here under-caffeinated in Washington, D.C. just before the holidays. just going to say, Greg is a harsh grader here. All right, in the, in the spirit of goodwill toward all, I'll give India a C plus, but China, China holds at a C minus. I'll make sure to retweet the, I think it's Jolly Jen, the, the MFA spokesperson, when we push this podcast. <laughs> make sure that you highlight this part about India, because if there's one thing I know about Twitter, that's how I get to a million followers ASAP. <laughs> That is true. That is <laughs> get a lot of angry Indian Twitter users yelling at me. This is a little bit of a big question, but there are three elections on the horizon next year, Thailand, Cambodia, Myanmar. What should our listeners be looking out for? Those are three extremely different elections. Myanmar, to pick up where I left off, we should be watching to see if the elections even happen. If they do, how many townships do they happen in? Because it will be a minority of the country. How much violence is there in the opposition trying to disrupt the election? And then which parties on the outside seize on that clearly farcical election as some kind of excuse to recognize the junta? And here I would be most worried about India. I mean, I think we know what China will do. We know what Russia will do. If there's one party 
who's kind of a quote unquote like minded who might actually be looking for an excuse to engage more directly with the junta, I would be worried that New Delhi might seize on a sham election as an excuse. Thailand, uh, I guess one, we'll see if Prayut's a nominee again, and two, whether or not he can, well, he can't win, uh, probably the popular vote, but whether or not he can skate by in a highly uh, stacked system into another term as prime minister, despite the fact that Thai will almost certainly win a plurality, if not a majority, and then I mean, a recent polling future forward or successor is doing better uh, than than Palang Pracharat. And then, I don't know, Alina, what do you think? Indonesia? You have anything else to say about Myanmar? Or, or are you more pe- optimistic, maybe? No, I would just say to expect the unexpected, really. Um, yeah, I think Myanmar, we can expect more violence and really a sham outcome. Thailand and in- Indonesia, I, honestly... Um, I don't know. But you're asking a Malaysian, right, where anything can happen overnight. Yeah, and I'm sorry, I said Indonesia. I think that not this year, but people will be watching closely. Right. Um, but the, the other one that Danny mentioned, I think it's very early in the morning, is Cambodia. The, so the Cambodian elections, nobody actually thinks that there will be a transition of power. The Candlelight Party doesn't seem to have the same support that the CNRP did, given the splits in the opposition. They did surprisingly well in the local elections, the, the communal elections, but they don't have, it doesn't seem like they have the infrastructure, the network to fight a highly gerrymandered and unfair system. So the CPP will win again. And then the big question in Cambodia is whether or not we see a transition to Hun Manet's official leadership sooner rather than later. You've got some speculation out there that Hun Sen might want to pass the official torch as early as this coming year. Of course, he'll remain behind the scenes as some kind of minister mentor type everybody expects, but we could see a pretty rapid consolidation of that transition. Or we could see something different. Or we could, or we could see three more Malaysian elections next year. Possible. (laughs) All right. Just to sort of bring us home on a bit more of an optimistic note, uh, I'm curious to hear you know, are there any trends in the region over the past year that have given you hope? or a reason to be optimistic? What are what are some of the, the highlights that we've seen? So I think at the grassroots level, if you'll call it that, you know, I, I've seen a lot of encouragement and optimism from just regular people of Southeast Asian countries banding together, trying to get their economies up and running. Even when governments have failed, you see this from you know, Myanmar to Malaysia, for example. Myanmar, of course, very different to situation. But also, I think with the summits at the higher political levels, a lot of these countries performed well. I'm not talking just about the hosts of those meetings, but all the heads of government and heads of state at the three um, meetings in Southeast Asia in November managed to band together and make Southeast Asia and ASEAN work. And so that gives me hope despite possibly a slightly more pessimistic note, um, particularly with some countries, I'm not going to name them at the beginning of this year. And so I'm a little optimistic going into the new year. But uh, then again, we might have some surprises. On the whole, I'm, I'm reasonably optimistic with the people and the politicians of Southeast Asia, more the people than the politicians, really. But you get my drift. And from an American perspective, I mean, the easy answer for me is the Philippine alliance. Uh, Anything can change. We'll see what happens when Marcos goes to Beijing in January. But the last 12 months have really been a home run as far as 
revitalizing and modernizing the U.S.-Philippine alliance, and I think that'll continue. I also think that the Biden administration deserves a lot of credit just for getting back to normal business after its predecessor. Um, there will always be gripes, but they, you know, showed up to things and behaved well and read their talking points and didn't tweet at 2 a.m. And and I think the administration appreciates that adult uh, foreign policy after after the turmoil of the previous years. Also, um, we saw a lot of progress on implementing the U.S. ASEAN and the bilateral relationships that I think don't get a lot of headlines, just a lot of nuts and bolts cooperation and implementation of existing programs, particularly on energy, capped off probably by the Just Energy Transition Partnership announcement with Indonesia. But I think there's been a lot more underneath of that, uh, which is not sufficient given the global rise in energy prices and the turmoil that the region's facing due to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but it's a good start. All right, folks, that was a um, longer than usual, leisurely, more fun, I hope, uh, holiday extravaganza from the South Asia radio team. We're going to take a break for the holidays. I hope you all do too. If you are looking for a great way to start next year and look ahead at at 2023, we'll have the annual CSS Asia forecast event on January 12th featuring all of the Asia programs here at, at CSIS looking at the year ahead. And with that, Alina, thank you so much for a great year of podcasting. Thank you for putting up with me. Danny, Karen, Andreka, thank you so much for joining us today and for helping keep all the lights on throughout the year. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for having us. Look forward to joining again. Thank you. And looking forward to next year. Especially you, Andreka, knowing how much you actually secretly hate podcasts. I appreciate you putting up with us this morning. And thank all of you for your support. We wish you all very happy holidays, uh, a happy new year, and we'll see you in 2023. Thanks again for joining us for this special holiday episode of Southeast Asia Radio. We've really enjoyed building our listenership in 2022 and are always open to hearing comments, questions, or feedback. So feel free to write us anytime at searadio at csis.org. Do us a favor and subscribe and give us a rating on iTunes or Spotify or whatever streaming platform you listen to us on. Tell your friends and family about us when you're home for the holidays. Our producer is Marla Hiller and our intern is Mike Tiernan. Our co-hosts today were Greg Poling, Alina Noor, Andreka Natalagawa, Daniel Fallon, and myself. I'm Karen Lee. And I'm Harrison Praytom. And happy holidays to all of our listeners. We will see you in 2023.